today we're going to continue our series where we look at the followers of Jesus Christ. So please take your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 2, stop in Matthew chapter 5 because we're going to be there as well. Acts chapter 2, and then we're going to springboard to Matthew chapter 5. Today I want to speak to you on the subject, a firm foundation, as we look at the followers of Jesus, those early followers of Christ, and we look at their confession. We see what their confession was, what they, when they confessed, what was it that they grounded themselves in, and we're going to see today that their foundation, what they grounded themselves in, their confession, if you will, was the Word of God, the holy, inerrant, infallible Word of God, this Bible that you're holding in your hands. And again, I would encourage you, as I often encourage you on Sunday mornings, bring your Bible to church. If you don't have a Bible, please see me. I will make sure that you get a Bible. This book will change your life if you will allow it to change your life. So bring God's Word and keep it open as we uh, gather around it and we, we read from it and we allow the Word of God to impact our life today. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 says this. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Notice what they did first. When they came together and they celebrated what was going on in the life of the church, it says they came together and their confession was the apostles' teaching. That which got them together, that which made them a part of what they were doing, was the, the, the teaching of the apostles' They learned from Jesus. You say, what was the apostles teaching? What was it they taught? What was it they were learning from? And, and I would submit to you that the apostles, those that were closest to Jesus, they, they were teaching that which they heard from Jesus in the first place. So the apostles' teaching came from Jesus. So if we're going to understand what it was that the apostles' teaching was, we need to understand the heart of Jesus Christ. We need to understand the heart of Jesus as it comes to this teaching, as it comes to the Word of God. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, let me give you a story of what happened to me. Growing up, I was saved, as I shared with you before, at the age of 17. I was saved at the age of 17, called to preach at the age of 18. Called to preach actually just a few weeks after I was saved, but... I was struggling with that call to ministry. Once I was saved and I gave my call to preach, I tell you what, I was on fire. I, the circles I was running in, my friends, they, they disowned me because I kept talking about Jesus as they were doing the things that they were doing in high school. I would go in and, and they would be doing some things that, that just wasn't right, wasn't good. And I said, can I tell you about Jesus? Soon, soon they said, hey, we're going to stop inviting Wesley to all our parties and everything because all he does is talk about Jesus. And so I talked about Jesus a lot. I was on fire for the Lord. I graduated from high school and I, and in East Tennessee, I went to a public school, but East Tennessee, it was very much a, a private school setting. We, we prayed in school. We, we, we read our Bible. We, we did all these things in, in public school and it was fine. Uh, but that's East Tennessee. That's, uh, that, that's a unique area there. As I got into college and began to be introduced to these thoughts that these kids are already being accustomed to now. You see, our kids, I, I'm only 33 years old, and I'm not that far removed from the youth today. But as far as I'm removed from the youth, and, and as far as you're removed from the youth, these guys are experiencing things that we never dreamt of. Did you realize that? 
they're being inundated by teachings that, that just makes, if you have hair on your head, it makes it curl. I mean, they, they, they are going through some things that they're, they're being taught these things, and it makes you sit back and say, what in the world is going on with our country? And I just want to put a plug in right now. You don't want to miss the first Sunday of July. We're going to call it God and Country Day, and I'm going to give you what I believe is the status of our country. As we come together, we worship, we celebrate our country, but you'll want, you don't want to miss the God and Country Day coming the first Sunday of July as I share where we are as a country and where we're headed and what's going to happen to us if we continue going down the road we're going down. But as I went into a biology class, my first class at the University of Tennessee, I went into a biology class and this class, when you, when you think of a class, you think a small room setting, right? In high school, you got maybe 30 kids. But in this setting, it was a big, massive auditorium, very similar to the, our sanctuary, just a big, massive auditorium. And, and the professor gets up and starts lecturing. And it was an environment where, where she would allow people to ask questions. And, and she began to lecture. And this was really the first time in my life, in my studies, that I've ever heard uh, the term evolution and it be used as a fact, I never heard that before growing up in high school because, again, I was in a, though I was in a public school, it was a, it was a quasi-Christian school, it was East Tennessee, so we prayed and all those things, but I, I, I heard this professor talking about evolution, and, and not just, not microevolution, but macroevolution, one species evolution uh, going into another species, the, the Darwinism, if you will. And they began to share this as fact and, and began to show uh, pictures of these Neanderthal and, and this, this ape-like human that, that is a, a missing piece to the puzzle that they're trying to find. And, and they're purporting this as science. They're purporting all of these things as fact. And, and I began to have a, uh, a, a, an, an e- uneasy feeling within my spirit about what was being said. And I, I simply raised my hand and the professor called on me and I said, I'm sorry, I, I'm missing the boat somewhere. I, I, I think I'm following what you're saying, but I'm sorry, I can't help but to understand. Are you saying that I came from a monkey? And she said, well, no, it's a lot more detailed than that. But if you want to, to, to bring it down to its, its basic degree, then, then yeah, you, you did. Remember, I was young and emblazoned in my youth and says things I probably should not have said. I raised my hand back up and I said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but if, if you're saying that this earth is billions of years old and, and I came from a monkey, then I've got to ask this question. It's, it's just a burden on my heart. I've been sitting here listening to you talk and, and where did the monkey come from? And she said, well, son, it, it, hold on, it gets better. (laughs) She said, and she told me, I don't even remember the the big words that she used. And she said, ultimately, we came from this, this soup type thing that was in the water. I said, well, she was getting mad at this time. I said, well, where did this primordial soup come from? And she said, well, it happened in a big bang. Where did the big bang come from? <laughs> well, all these gases, they, they, they got together and they exploded. Where did the gases come from? She said, son, I need you to leave my class. <laughs> As you think about that, 
as you think about God's word and how you cannot believe in macroevolution and believe in God's word at the same time. It's not possible. It's not possible. As I read, and I read that the animals, the monkey was created on the sixth day, the same day that you and I were created on. Six days of creation and on the seventh, God rested. For whatever reason, in the name of science, the Bible has become very scrutinized in our culture today. I'm not going to be giving you an apologetic today on God's word. That message will come in due season. But today I want to talk to you about God's word and what Jesus said about it. The Bible is the most scrutinized, the most criticized book that's ever been written. However, no manuscript of its kind contains the kind of preservation and integrity that your Bible holds. As many criticisms that the Bible has taken, it has stood the test of science and archaeology. If you go to the nation of Israel today, you will hear from your guide that every time the trowel of a shovel hits the earth and it turns over dirt, every single time a new discovery is found, it proves the word of God. Archaeology does not, they're not going to ever find something in Israel that disproves God's word. You know why? Because God's word is accurate. God's word is true. And every time they find a new discovery, they, there's, there's some question in the Bible. Well, we didn't know if this group actually lived. We don't know if this city was actually there. Give us some time. They're going to find it. They always do. God's word is true and accurate. It's always going to be There's always going to be critics. There's always going to be there that try to disprove it. But listen to me, it's always going to confirm itself and always will be true because it is God's word. It's inerrant. That means it's without error. It's infallible. That means it's without fault. So when we stand and we stand on God's word, we're not standing on the words of men, but we're standing on the actual word of God. Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter six, Matthew chapter seven contain the greatest sermon ever preached. Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he, he began and he began by preaching. Matthew 5, 6 and 7, the Beatitudes are contained in this, uh, the, the, this Sermon on the Mount. And as he's preaching, he, he hits on the subject of God's word. And that's where I want us to focus for the remainder of time that we have today. Here in, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 17, look at it with me if you will. In your translation, as I read from mine, Matthew five seventeen, says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets. The law is the Pentateuch. The prophets is the remainder of the Old Testament. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, Look, I've not come to do away with the Bible, but I've come to what? To fulfill it. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So as we see this passage, we see that Jesus really teaches us three things about God's word. Number one, we see the author. And the author is Jesus. Verse 17 says, uh, Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law. And going back to Acts chapter 2, what did they do? They were teaching that which the apostles had taught them. So it's the scripture, God's word. And as we look at God's word, we see that Jesus says, I am the author of the scripture. That word fulfill there. That word fulfill. 
uh, plerao in the Greek, it's a verb. It doesn't mean to bring it to a point to contradict it or bring it to a point where it's final, but what it means is to clarify original meaning. So when Jesus said, I have come not to do away with the, uh, the Old Testament, I'm not come to do away with the law, I'm not come to do away with the prophets, but what I actually have come to do is I have come to clarify those things that have been written before. Basically what he's saying here is that you Pharisees and you Sadducees and all of you people who have been walking along the Old Testament and you're making all of your understandings and and you're trying to preach from my word, all you've done is messed up. You've missed the meaning. So he said, I have come not to do away with it. Because you're going to hear me say some radical things, Jesus says. Some radical things that you've never probably heard before. But I'm not coming and doing away with the Bible, but I'm coming to bring clarification. He said, I'm coming so that you may understand that which you have been taught. Let me give you a for example. Jesus said, you've heard it said. You've heard it said that if you sleep with a woman, you've committed adultery. But Jesus said, I say unto you that if you've lusted after a woman in your own heart, then you've committed adultery. He said, you've heard it said from the law of Moses that if you take another man's life, you committed murder. But Jesus said, I say unto you that if you have hated a man in your heart, then you've already committed murder. You see, he's not doing away with the law, but he's making us and helping us to understand what he meant when he wrote it. You say, what he meant when he wrote it? How could Jesus write something? How could Jesus write the Old Testament if he didn't come about into the New Testament? Don't miss this. Jesus is eternal. He didn't just come about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the New Testament. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is God. He was there before the beginning. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three, not not three gods, but three persons. One God manifested in three different persons. Jesus is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. And he doesn't have an end. He is eternal. Let me show you. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, it's a beautiful language in the Hebrew, uh, the first three words of Genesis 1, 1, Barashot bara Elohim. Barashot bara Elohim, in the beginning God created. And it goes on to say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And behold, the Spirit of God moved across the face of the deep. And then what does verse 3 say? The first three words of Genesis 1, 3. And God said. And God said. How did God create things? Every time God made, every time God created something, each of the days of creation, each of the six days, go back and look at it in your Bible, Genesis 1, 3 and following. Every time God created something, it says, and God said. And God said. God created things by his word, didn't he? God spoke them into existence and they became existent. On day one, he he, he, he separated the light from the darkness and he created the lightness and the darkness. 
On day two, he, he separated the sky from the water. He said the firmament is going to be separated. On day three, the dry land began to come up across and underneath from the waters and dry land began to surface on day three. On day four, he hung the sun and the moon and the stars and Jupiter and all of the planets in our solar system and all of the other solar systems. He hung them in place with his hands. On day five, he, he created living things. He, he created birds and fish. On day six, he created animals. He created monkeys. He created your dog, and your cat, your mother-in-law. <laughs> On the sixth day of creation, he created man. But in all those times that he made those creation statements, it always is prefaced by, and God said, and God said. You remember that? In John chapter 1, verse 1, John gives us a unique understanding of who Jesus is. In John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So how did God create things in Genesis chapter 1? He created them by his Word. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we see that Jesus is the Word. So you see, Jesus is the agent of creation. Let me give you a passage of Scripture that brings this together. Paul wrote through the inspiration of the Scripture and uh, through the inspiration of, of the Spirit. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things that were created were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were the thrones or dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So who wrote scripture? Well, Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was the agent of creation. He is the word. So Jesus, yes, is the author of that book that you're holding in your hand. Now, some of you have what's called a red letter edition to your Bible. A red letter edition is those words that Jesus spoke in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and oftentimes we take those red letters and we, we elevate them to an a, a better level, don't we? Let me tell you something that, that we should not do that. You know why? Because every word of God that's found in your Bible is a red letter because Jesus said it all. Jesus said it all from the beginning of time, from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the final amen of the book of Revelation. We see a scarlet thread. We see the red letters found throughout, don't we? Jesus is the fulfillment. He said, I have come to fulfill. I have come to bring clarification to you. When he says, I have come to fulfill, not to do away, not to, not to break away and for you to rip out the Old Testament and throw away. That's not what I've come to do. But what I've come to do is to help clarify and help you to understand the things that you're reading. So when we read in the Old Testament and we see that in the same book, the book of Genesis, the first book of your Bible, in there it says that after man had sinned, the Bible says that the serpent will will clip the, 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 the woman, but the foot will crush the head of the serpent. That foot brings clarity. Jesus said, I have come to clarify that. That foot is what happened when Christ rose again from the dead. Jesus brings clarity. He's the fulfillment. Remember the ram that was stuck in the thicket and Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac? And Isaac said, well, I see the fire, I see, I, I see the stone, I see that we're going to sacrifice, but oh, Dad, where is that offering? Where's the sacrifice? And Isaac, or Abraham said to his son Isaac, he said, Son, God will provide the sacrifice. 
And there, right before he was to sacrifice his son Isaac, the angel said, stop, stay your hand. And there was a ram that was stuck in the thicket. Jesus is that ram. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're all like sheep being led to a slaughter. We all justify, we justifiably deserve death. But Jesus was the ram who was caught in the thicket, who took our place for us. He's the... Remember the story in Exodus when God's people, the Hebrews, were there in bondage in Egypt. And Pharaoh would not let the people of God go. And God said, I want you to take a spotless lamb. I want you to take a spotless lamb and to slay it, to cut his throat and grab the blood and put it on the, the doorposts and lentils of your, of your home. And when the death angel passes over, if it sees the blood, it will pass over and it will do you no harm. Can I tell you that Jesus is that Passover lamb? Easter happened during the time of, of Passover. They were celebrating the Passover meal. So Jesus says, I have come to bring clarification to all the things that you've seen, all the things that you've read in the Old Testament. I have brought fulfillment to them all. He is that Passover lamb, the spotless lamb who took our place. He's the one promised to David, the great king to come. He was the one that was standing there in the fiery furnace with those, those Hebrew boys as they would, would not bend or bow to the, the old king and they were thrown into the fiery furnace and, and the king and the men said, we threw, we threw three in, but there's four people in there, the fourth person that was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He was the one that wrestled with Jacob and, and touched his leg and made him lame in his leg and he gave him the name of Israel. Watch this, don't miss this. Moses asked God for an unusual thing. Moses said, God, I want to see your what, church? Remember? He said, I want to see your face. And what did God say? God said, oh, no, Moses. No, no, no. <laughs> Nobody can see my face. For if you look at my face, whoever looks at my face will surely what? Well, you'll die. You'll die. Now, for my Bible scholars, did you know that Moses actually did get to see the face of God? He did. Not while he was alive. Oh, no. <laughs> It came thousands and thousands of years later. There was a man by the name of Jesus, and he had a group of friends, and they walked up onto a mountain one day. And there Jesus showed his glory to those, those friends. He was transfigured. And the Bible says that all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah showed up. When Moses looked at the face of Jesus, he saw the face of God. So even though while Moses, there's a whole, there's a sermon right in there, isn't there? That while you may not get what you pray for and ask for, you wait and God will do it in his time. And there's a whole sermon there. But the point is this, the point is this. When you see Jesus, you see God again, Colossians 1.15. He is the image. He is the icon. He is the exact replication of the invisible God. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He wrote it. He wrote the word and he's the fulfillment of it. Number one, we see the author. Number two, we see the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Look back at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus didn't set himself up to be a substitute for the Bible. He, 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 rather, he submitted himself to the Word of God. He, he magnified the Word of God. He, he never nullified it. 
He always magnified. He always said, he always pointed back to God's word. His sermons were chock full of scripture. Go back and read his sermons over and over and over again. He would look at the Pharisees. He said, you've heard it said. You've read it yourself. You've memorized this. You should know this. And he keeps going back over and over and over again to God's word. When he was 12 years old, he, he, his parents found him there in the temple teaching the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes. He was a man who knew the, and believed in the authority of Scripture. He was, his foes were rebuked. He taught. And his ministry was a fulfillment of the smallest detail of prophecy. When it came time for him to go one-on-one with Satan himself, and right before he began his ministry, and he faced Satan, that old demon, in the wilderness, he didn't pull rank. Go back and read it. He didn't, he didn't say, Satan, don't you know who I am? I created you. He didn't say that, did he? He didn't pull rank. What did he do? He submitted himself once again to the word of God, didn't he? Over and over, he said, it is written. It is written. It is written. Jesus believed in the power of the word of God. When Jesus spoke, he, he spoke from heaven and he fortified himself against the assaults of men with the living word of God. Let that be our practice. That when the gates of hell come against your marriage, you stand firm on the word of God. That when the gates of hell come against your children, you stand firm on the word of God. When Satan tries to attack you at work or he tries to tell you that you're useless, he tries to tell you that you're, you're no good, you're worthless, you stand on the promise of God's word for you will never be shaken when you stand on God's word. The foolish man built his house upon the sand, but the wise man built his house upon the rock, the foundation of God's word. Let that be our practice. Allow God's word to be your foundation. Allow God's word to be your defense. Friend, you don't have a defense. I don't have a defense. When the wiles of the devil, when he comes and he assaults us, everything he says about us is honestly true. We are a no good sinner. But the truth is, while we don't have a defense, God's word defends us. And while we may be as Christians no good, low-down, dirty sinners, we are children of the Most High, according to his word. We've been adopted into his family. So don't you ever let anybody tell you that you're worthless or you're no good because in God's kingdom and in God's eyes, you are somebody and you are worth a whole lot. Now, our authority is purchased by the blood. It's indwelt by the Spirit and it's promised in Scripture. God said it. You can count on it. His is the supreme authority. Number three, we see the authenticity of Scripture. Authenticity of Scripture. Not only do we see the author of Scripture and we see the authority of Scripture, but we also see the authenticity of Scripture. Look at verse 18. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from this law until all is accomplished. This means that he believed the word of God is verbally inspired. He said, not one iota or dot. Perhaps your Bible says not, not one jot or tittle. A jot, a tittle, an iota, a dot. That, that's the smallest um, uh, letters that you can find in the Hebrew language. The jot, the, the, the dot, the iota. 
It's kind of like in English, the, the dot of an I and a crossing of a T. The, the smallest movement that you can make. And he says, of all of as, as big and as expanse as God's word is, even the smallest dot, even the smallest dot is inspired by God. Now, let me say this, that all is inspired, but not all is inspiring, is it? When you read through God's word and you, if you read from cover to cover and you come to, say, the, the book of Numbers, and you read through the book of Numbers, you, you say, oh, man, pastor, is this inspired by God? All of these numbers? Yes, it is. While it may not be as inspiring as, say, reading the, the book of Acts or the book of Romans, while it may not be as inspiring, the book of Numbers is just as inspired as the book of Romans or the book of Acts. It is all God's word. So we can't just pick and choose what we want to follow. It is all God's word. So there's some today who they want to take the Bible and they say, well, it's just merely a human book. Forty-plus men wrote down their own thoughts and they collected it together. The church collected it together and they chose the books they wanted and they threw out the books they didn't want. At best, it's the thoughts of men about God. There are others who suggest that the way God inspired the word was to give men like Paul and John and James and Moses and others great thoughts, and then these men used their own words. For example, the idea came from God to write about love, but then Paul wrote himself his own words in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, his own experience. In other words, God inspired the thought, but the words came from men. Listen to me. That's not what Jesus said about Scripture. Neither one of them. Neither one of them. Every word, every thought is God's word. Period. 2 Timothy 3.16, we find one of the most important passages in all the Bible as it relates to the Scripture. It says, all Scripture, all graphe is theonoustos, God-breathed, inspired. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Not only the thoughts, but also the words. All Scripture, all the writings, all the prophets, all the law, all the New Testament, all of this is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. All, God, all, all Scripture is inspired. That literally means breathed out by God and gave to us. God breathed it out. It originated with God, and he is the supreme author of all that you have. Now, listen to me very carefully. We're not Bible idolaters, meaning we don't worship the Bible. We don't take the Bible and lay it here and we begin to worship it. We don't do that. Who we worship is we worship the God that the Bible talks and points us to. That's important. When you step into a church that is of the Baptist tradition, you're going to notice something unique about a Baptist church that is not found in many other denominations. Where's the pulpit in a Baptist church? Central, right? Why? It's not saying because the pastor has to be central, but what's central? God's word. That's why the pulpit sits where it does in a Baptist church. Because you see, while we don't worship God's word, we honor it and God's word is holy. God's word is infallible. God's word is inerrant. And because of that, we read it so that it can point us to these things of salvation and it points us to Jesus Christ. Now, listen closely. 
When God inspired his word, he, he, it wasn't mechanical in the sense that these men just sat down and began to, to mechanically receive the dictation, nor was it magical. These men didn't go into some type of trance and, and start writing these things down. It was miraculous. It was miraculous. It was supernatural as God sovereignly superintended the whole process. Now, for those of you who are more theologian bent, I'll give you my understanding of Scripture. It's the plenary verbal interpretation. I believe in the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. Plenary, that means all. It's equally inspired. Plenary, all inspired, equally The verbal means words, not just the ideas, not just the thoughts, but actually the words. So when you read the book of Numbers and you read all of those numbers, the actual numbers themselves were inspired by God, period. So not just the thoughts, but the very words breathed out by God. So some 40 authors over 1,400 years penned 66 books inspired by God. The Bible is factually false. You will not find a contradiction in it at all. The Bible is an amazing book, isn't it, church? This Bible that is sitting open on my pulpit, on this pulpit of the church, this Bible that is sitting open in your lap or in the pew beside you, it's an amazing book. It, it changes lives. The message that it portrays changes lives. And that's the power of Scripture. Jesus said that this book will testify of me. This book is alive and it's powerful. It never changes. Not one jot, not one tittle will ever pass, he said. Other books can change your thinking, but only the Bible can change your heart. A lot of books out there that have been written by men, and it can change your way of thinking, but only the Bible can change your marriage. Only the Bible can change your relationship with Jesus. Only the Bible can point you to what God is saying to you to do. Now, if you're interested in God changing, if you're not interested in God changing your life, then don't read the Bible. If you want God to change your life, then you need to read the Bible. Because you see, the Bible is for those who want to know more about God. The Bible is a book for those who want to learn about forgiveness and who want to have a reality of relationship with God. The Bible is a book for people who who want to know how to have power over the enemy and how to defeat temptation. The book of the Bible is a book for those who want to learn how to have a vibrant and healthy relationship and marriage and family. The Bible is a book for those who want to seek true comfort from their pain and comfort is found in the scripture. The Bible is a book for those who want to learn how to control their emotions and anxieties and fears and the depressions that seep into our life. The Bible is a book that for those who want to learn how to live, and it's also a book for those who want to learn how to die. Because you see, the book, the, 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 the Bible, it answers every question there is about life. If you have a question about life, the Bible is going to provide you an answer. Ultimately, the Bible tells you how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything that you read. As you read the Old Testament, Jesus is the one who there are looking forward to. When you get to the cross and the resurrection, everything is pointing back to it. There's a sense of a drumbeat in Scripture as you read from the Genesis and you come all the way to the last prophet of Malachi, a drumbeat. And that 
as time goes on, that drum beat gets louder and faster, louder and faster, louder and faster. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes and things start happening quick, 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 quick. And then the crucifixion, it all stops. And then the resurrection. And then that drum beat starts happening again. And now we're into a time when that drumbeat is happening as fast, as furious. Something is about to happen in our culture. And my question is for you is, are you ready? Are you ready? You see, this world is falling apart at the hinges. It's falling apart. Look around you. Look at the culture. Look at the billboards. Look at, look at everything around us. It, 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 it's, it's the, 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 the society is falling apart. Can't you see it? Can't you see that this is exactly what God said was going to happen? As we read God's word over, I can give you a defense for everything that I said here today. I can give you a defense, but this, there's coming a time where I'll do that. But, but hear my heart. Hear my heart. When you simply just read the pages of Scripture and you read about how, how Jesus was going to be born of a virgin and this was said 700 years before it happened and then it happened, doesn't that wake you up a little bit? Does it not wake you up that 800 years before crucifixion was even thought of that some man in the Bible wrote about crucifixion before it was even thought of and then Jesus was crucified through crucifixion? Does that not open your eyes? It was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Wait a minute, does that not open your eyes? Where was Jesus born? You see, we don't have to go outside of Scripture. Scripture itself speaks of itself. The authority, authenticity, the author. Christ died for our sins. Every one of us, he died for you. You say, well, I don't know if I, don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if that's truth. Let me, let me clarify something for us. Let's get everything out in the open, Okay. You may believe it or you may reject it. That's fine. That's up to you. That's the choice that you get to make. You get to make that choice. God has given each one of us the ability to have free will, a free choice, where we can decide whether or not we want to accept something or reject something. You have that free choice. But don't come and say, well, I don't know if that's truth or not. Because this is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, period. That is truth. Graduates from high school, you're about to enter into, if you go into a public school of college, you're about to enter into a, a world that you have never dreamt before. I shared with you earlier, I think that, I don't know if you got in when I shared with you my stint in a biology class, but I'll share with you what happened to me in a philosophy class. Same kind of concept that happened, but this time it was a little different. I, I don't really understand philosophy very well. We were sitting in philosophy class, and we were learning about this man named Descartes. Anybody ever heard of Descartes? Descartes the one who said, I think, therefore I am. Uh, Descartes is a, um, a modernist, an existentialist. Uh, all that means is, anybody ever seen the movie The Matrix? You ever seen the movie The Matrix? That, that, that's basically what it is. Basically, you're saying, I don't know what's real and what's not real. Uh, this is a thought that's been around for several, hundred, se several centuries. I had a professor, and it was just so dumb. He, he was standing there, and he, he said, 
I am a modern existentialist, and I, I was looking that up, trying to understand what a modern existentialist meant. And he said, let me tell you what that means. He said, I don't know if that chair is really here or not. He was standing right by a chair. He said, I don't know if that chair is really here or not. It could be a figment of my imagination. It, 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 it may just be somebody's playing a cruel trick on me in this. People really think like this. I'm like, what? I, I just said under my breath, and he actually heard me. I said, well, if I stand up and I grab that chair and hit you over the head, then maybe you'll know it's real. I got kicked out of that class too. <laughs> he didn't find it very funny. I'm glad that you find the humor in it. I thought it was funny. <laughs> but you have people that think like that. You have to be careful. Guys, you've got to be careful because I don't think it's just in college, but it's, all, it's going to be in your high school. It's going to be in the world. People really believe that. Let me tell you how that translates. Not, not everybody's going to walk around and say, well, I don't know if this exists or that exists. If you see it, it, it probably does exist. But let me tell you what they're saying. They say, well, you know, I don't know if I believe in God or not. I, I, I don't know if he's there because I can't see him. Therefore, I can't believe him. It's modern existentialism. There's also another thought that's going around in, in colleges. It's called postmodernism. You've got modernism, existentialism uh, there, but you've also got the postmodern thought, and that's Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche coined the phrase, God is dead. What Nietzsche says is that uh, what's true for you is good for you, but what's true for me is good for me. That's just as boneheaded as somebody who says, I don't know if a chair is there or not. Because let me tell you, there, there are some relative things. There are some, there are some things that are objective, uh, or subjective rather. There are some subjective things like, uh, do you like celery? I do not like celery. I think celery is from the devil. Uh, I, I think that, but there are some here who says, I love celery. My dad eats celery by itself, and it just makes me cringe. That, that, is, that is something that's subjective, isn't it? food and taste and colors and, 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 and beauty and those things. Those, there, there are things that are subjective, but let me, let me share with you, there are things that are objective. There are some things that are true whether you want to believe them or not. If you touch a hot stove, it will burn you, period. If you don't believe me, go try it. No, don't go try it. It'll burn you. You say, well, pastor, what if you're wrong about this? Then all I am is a good moral person. But let me ask you, what if I'm right about this and what if you're wrong about your philosophy? Then you have hell to pay, friend. You have hell to pay. God's word is a love letter written to all of us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what he says in his word. Absolute truth is found in God's word. If you're seeking truth, if you're seeking what's real in life, go to God's word. It's, it's truth that matters. It's truth that, that changes life. It's truth about heaven and hell, life and death, right and wrong. And it's our goal. It's our goal as believers to submit ourselves to his word, to the Bible. Now, you say, well, I see the facts. I, I see all of these things. I, I, I look at the Old Testament prophecies and I see how they're fulfilled in Jesus. I, I get all that, preacher, and I, I've got it right here. Listen, at some point, it's got to translate from going as a head knowledge of knowing something and reason and coming into faith. There comes a time when ultimately you have to receive the word by faith. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by what, church? The word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Many are wrestling with the subject and the nature of Scripture. Did you know that there was a time when 
Billy Graham struggled with that, struggled with Scripture. Some of you kids, you may not know who Billy Graham is. That's sad, isn't it? Billy Graham was not some NBA star, but he was a man who God has used in his life more than any other man on the face of this earth. To see more people come to a saving knowledge of Christ than any other person. Think about that for just a moment. Billy Graham. God bless him as he is still alive in North Carolina. As he was a young evangelist, he was running with a group of people who were struggling with the authority of Scripture. He, his best friend, his best friend's name was Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton, uh, it was said of Charles Templeton that whatever Billy Graham was going to be able to accomplish in his ministry, Charles Templeton was going to do three times that amount. That's how exciting of a person he was. Charles Templeton, at the age of 30, was on CBS on national TV preaching at primetime hour. Think about that. Charles Templeton. He, Charles Templeton went to Princeton Theological Seminary, and he began to listen to these philosophies, some of the ones that I shared with you earlier. And Charles Templeton began to doubt God's word. It wasn't as a faith to him. It was intellectual. And he denied God. He denied Christ. And he became an agnostic. He walked away from the faith. Here's a man who was doing, before, well before Billy Graham was doing anything like this on this level, Charles Templeton was already there. And Billy Graham, who was very close with Charles, he, he looked at that and he began to doubt the faith and he began to doubt salvation. And Billy Graham tells the story that he said, I took my Bible and he said, I went out into the woods and the, 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 the woods and the trees of North Carolina and I got alone with God and I got down and I opened it up and I just wept. I put my face right in it and I said, God, if this is your word, then won't you tell me this is true? And here's what he said. I want you to see the words of what he said. It's on the screen. He said, I believe. This is the words of Billy Graham. I believe it is not possible. This is coming out of his prayer. He's reflecting back. He said, I believe it is not possible to understand everything in the Bible intellectually. One day, some years ago, I decided to accept the scriptures by faith. There were problems I could not reason through. When I accepted the Bible as the authoritative word of God by faith, I found immediately that it became a flame in my hand. That flame began to melt away unbelief in the hearts of many people and to move them to the side of Christ. The word became a hammer breaking up stony hearts and shaping men into the likeness of God. Did God say, I will make my words in my mouth like fire, and is not my word like a fire, and saith the Lord like a hammer that breaketh the rocks to pieces? Mr. Graham said, I, I found that I could take a simple outline and put a number of scripture quotations under each point, and God would, make, well, God would use it mightily to cause men to make a full commitment to Christ. He said, I found that I didn't have to rely upon cleverness or oratory or psychological manipulation, apt illustrations or striking quotations from famous men. He said, I began to rely more and more upon the scripture itself and God blessed it and I am convinced through my travels and experience that people all over the world are hungry to hear the word of God. It was D.L. Moody and now I know you kids probably don't know who D.L. Moody was. It was D.L. Moody that said, who was a great evangelist. He was the Billy Graham before Billy Graham was Billy Graham. It was D.L. Moody who said, this earth has not seen what God can do until a young man, a young woman, fully commits himself to Jesus Christ. I heard that Billy Graham quoted D.L. Moody not too long ago. This is a man who's seen thousands, if not millions of people come to a faith in Christ. 
And Billy Graham said himself, kids, listen up, students, listen up. Billy Graham said himself, this world has not seen. This world has not seen what could happen if a young person like you truly became devoted to the things and the cause of Christ who stood on the word of God and you became a devoted follower of Christ, this world has not seen what would happen if that happens in your life. Became a truly devoted follower of Christ. I say that to our church, our congregation, not just to our students, but to all of us. You say, well, what do I have to do? I'm not Billy Graham. I can't stand in front of anybody and say anything. That's not maybe what you're called to do, but maybe it is. But the point is this. It's not about us. It's about God's word. And when we submit ourselves to God's word, God begins to move in the lives of our, of our lives and the lives of others. Perhaps you're here today and you don't know Christ in a personal way. I truly believe, and you may call me superstitious or whatever, but I truly believe in the words of what Billy Graham said. It's been my experience that, that through my faulty preaching that God begins to grab a hold of people and his word does not return void. I've seen that over and over and over again. God has allowed me to see that. And I truly believe that there are some here today and you've never invited Christ into your life. You don't have a relationship with him. And God's word says that if you die lost without him, then you're going to split the gates of hell wide open, friend. I'm not offering you fire insurance. I'm not saying if you come and pray this prayer, then you're going to get out of hell a free card. That's not what I'm selling. I'm not peddling anything. All I'm asking you to do is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. To put your churchology down, to put the front down, to, to stop holding on. Maybe some of you are holding on to the shoestrings or the bootstraps of your parents saying, well, my parents are Christians, therefore I must be a Christian. doesn't work like that. Is there ever a time in your life when you invited Christ into your life? The Bible says, we've been talking about the authority of God's word today. God's word says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a passage of scripture that you probably know. It's John three sixteen. It says this, for God so loved the world, for God so loved you that he gave his only son, that whosoever will believe in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. You want to have everlasting life with God right now? Right now, in the quietness of this room, you can start a relationship with the Lord. Will you bow your heads with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Across this room, there are some here today, and you don't know Christ in a personal way. You've never been saved. Why not today? Why, why don't you open your heart to him today and say, I invite you into my life? You say, well, what do I need to do? There's nothing that really you need to do. It's already been done. Christ died for you. The gift has been given. Now you have to choose to receive it. You say, well, will God forgive me of all the things that I have done in my past? I'm, Pastor, you don't know what all I've done in my, in my past. Will God forgive me for that? The answer is yes. God forgave a murderer by the name of Saul and used him to write two-thirds of the New Testament. If God can use a murderer, then he can use you, friend. He wants you to be a part of his family. Stop running from him. Stop running from him. Open your heart right now and invite him in. If you've never invited Christ into your life, you say, well, how do I do that? We'll start by telling God you're a sinner. Go ahead. You don't have to say it out loud. Just say it in your heart. Just tell God you're a sinner right now. Tell him. In your own words, say, God, I am a sinner. Ask him to forgive you of, of your sin. Repent of that sin. Turn from that sin. Say something like, God, I, I turn from my sin. I repent of that sin. Now invite him to come into your life and to save you, to be your Lord and Savior. 
Say, God, I I ask that you come into my life and, and save me. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again on the third day? If you believe that, then say it by faith. Though you've not seen it with your own physical eyes, you've seen it with your your spiritual eyes, haven't you? And you believe it. Though you've not seen it, you believe it. Blessed are those who have not seen, but yet believe, the Bible says. Now I want you to thank him for the salvation that he has given to you. You see, the Bible says, the Bible promises, God's word promises that if you invite him into your life, then you start a relationship a true relationship with the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit standing on his word. In just a moment, we want to celebrate with you because you see, while you can't see it with your physical eyes, right now, all across this room, as people have invited Christ into their life for the first time, the Bible says the angels in heaven are rejoicing. They're throwing a party for you because they're so excited that you stepped out of the dark and now you stepped into the light. And as the angels are celebrating in heaven, we want to celebrate with them. And the only way we can do that is if you come forward and you let us know the decision that you made. You say, well, how in the world can I walk in front of all these people? It's not the walking down or anything like that. We, we're not going to put you on the spot. We're not going to make you give a speech. We're not going to even call you out or point you out. The reason why we're asking you to slip out and come down is because there's so much more to the Christian life than simply just praying a prayer. And we want to invest in your life. We want to share with you and show you and point you in the direction that you need to go in. So if you prayed with me just a few moments ago, when we stand and sing in just a moment, I want you to be the first to step out from where you are and come forward, and we're going to have a minister at the head of every aisle. And all you have to do is say, I prayed with that pastor. I prayed with that preacher. I invited Christ into my life, and I'm saved. I I want to know what I need to do next. We'll take it from there. We'll unite you with, with somebody who's going to soon be your close friend, and you're going to go into a back room. We won't keep you long, I promise, but we want to share with you what the next steps of the Christian life are. Perhaps you're walking through some struggles in life, and you just need prayer. Maybe you need to be alone. Maybe you want to pray with a minister. That's fine. If you've been searching for a church that stands on God's word, then, then you found it, friend. Here at Aloma Church, you're going to make us better, but you need to come and join us, and we'll receive you as we receive members. If you're being led to join Aloma Church, then come during this time of invitation and let the minister know, and we'll, we'll unite you with the person, and we'll be able to share with you. Maybe, maybe young person, God is calling you to the ministry, and you've never made that public. Maybe older person, God has called you to the ministry and you've never made that public. And God has placed something on your heart today that says, I, I, need to, I need to make a public declaration. I don't know what this means. I don't know what this looks like, but I know that God is calling me to something more than what I'm doing. And I want to make that public. Then this invitation is for you. Whatever is appropriate, this is the time to respond. Our Father, we ask that your spirit will search us that your spirit will go through the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, students, white, black, brown, yellow, red, doesn't matter what color we are, male or female, doesn't matter, doesn't matter our age. But, oh God, break our hearts to the point that we stop breaking your heart. Help us to stand on the word. And Father, may we walk forward. May we walk forward in the convictions that you have led us to. In Jesus' name.